Welcome to our session right before lunch, SIS 12, Pain, Drugs, and Ethics. Our faculty today is Dr. Kevin Zakharoff. Please help us me welcome Dr. Kevin Zakharoff. Thank you, Andrea. Uh, sound good? All right, good, good. Um, hopefully most of you know who I am. Uh, if you do, uh, you've probably heard me say this already, but I hate this room because I have to stand up here, and I usually like knowing about you, so forgive me for just staying up here, but you couldn't see me, and I couldn't see you, and you wouldn't see all this, see the slides. Um, Part of what gives me the credibility to speak about this subject is that I've been teaching medical ethics at Stony Brook Medical School now for 12 years, and I also chair the ethics committee at my hospital. And uh, when I was in medical school training, uh, we never talked about this stuff. Uh, there was no discussion about ethics or professionalism or things to think about in this regard, and it just popped into my head that this might be something good for us to talk about because there are so many things that are swirling around us and changing uh, and that are going to change within six months or a year of you attending this meeting. But the reality is that some, some ethical principles are not going to change. They're going to be rock solid in there for you. And uh, I wasn't 100% sure that these kinds of things get discussed as much as they need to. So on that note, we'll get started. And thank you all for being here. Uh, really means a lot to me. Uh, I hope you're getting a lot out of this meeting. Uh, yes? Yes. Good, good. That's good to hear. I don't have anything to disclose, and we'll, we'll get to the learning objectives. Uh, so the way I'm going to start off is by taking a, a, a backdoor approach to, to ethics and uh, just talk about chronic pain. Um, we faculty, we get interviewed by the Pain Week people every year. They put us in a green room with a fake background and they ask us questions and they shoot video clips. And one of the questions that I got asked this morning is, how would I discuss the similarities and the differences of chronic pain and other medical conditions? So that's a good place for us to start because I think there are similarities and there are differences. So. Some questions we might ask ourselves is, well, all types of chronic pain is really the same, right? Somebody comes in with a chief complaint, we're going to assess them, we're going to do all of the things that I have been teaching my medical students and I have been professing at the last 12 pain weeks for people to do. Everything that fits into that cookbook method, and if you document all of this, you're going to be good to go and you're going to be doing right by your patient. So basically, regardless of what type of chronic pain people have, it should be good, right? Well, I'm not 100% sure. And I'm not 100% sure because while all of these bullets have remained the same over the course of the years, so much has changed over the last 20 years with regards to pain management, opioid prescribing, regulatory guidelines, fear of regulatory scrutiny, and everything else under the sun. So it's not as simple of a cookbook approach as it as you might think. So, I guess we could take the opposite approach and say all chronic pain is then different, right? I mean, if we think about it, 
from a cheap complaint perspective, everything is subjective. Everything that the patient is saying, we have no real clue as to whether we can determine that that's the case. All we can do is look for things to affirm what they're saying, but we can't confirm. And in many situations, especially in patients with chronic pain where there was an initial injury, healing took place, the pain persists, and there's really nothing for us to see. Functional capacity, unlike many other medical conditions like hypertension and early stages of diabetes, is significantly impacted in chronic pain. That makes it different in my mind. That's one of the places where I think the tornado was swirling. Because many of you may or may not know that there is consideration about decommissioning pain as the fifth vital sign. There is also discussion about removing the domain of pain from HCAP scores because a lot of people feel that that is just furthering a problem. I wish, and I was asked this question in the green room earlier today as well, I wish that when pain was made the fifth vital sign, the way to measure it was by asking people about how it's impacting their ability to do what they need to do in the course of their lives on a scale of 0 to 10 instead of how much it hurts. And maybe that would have removed the ability to say at 12. If something completely prevents you from doing what you need to do, that's as much as it can get, right? When we think about educational deficits at the clinician level, I think it's fair to say that with respect to things like diabetes, hypertension, and other common medical conditions, we've done a really good job of educating our people in training about what to do. But I think we're really doing a miserable job in terms of training people about what to do with respect to pain. And for those of you who were at the keynote last night and heard me read some excerpts from that Uh, peace of my mind from that intern who really didn't know what to do and really didn't see a lot of consensus coming from their attendings and mentors, I think we have a lot of progress to be made. Uh, In 2011, an article was published that showed that only 4% of medical training programs in North America, United States and Canada, had a bona fide pain curriculum. In Stony Brook Medical School, where I teach, before I got there, one hour of medical school was devoted to opioids. Zero time was devoted to substance abuse disorders. And now it's taken me 12 years, and we're working on a mandated course for all our fourth-year medical students starting next year. But we also have to bridge that over to the dental school, to the nursing school, to all of the other allied healthcare professional programs, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure most of you agree with that. Some other things that make pain in a chronic form different than other medical conditions is fear is a major part of what patients experience. And stigmatization, as we all know, at the healthcare provider level and at the patient level is something that makes it different. Other key differences are that if we're honest with ourselves, and I said this yesterday, I think it's worth repeating, and if we talk to patients, there's very low likelihood that there will be what patients would define a cure for for their chronic pain. Cure is unlikely. 
goals and expectations of both healthcare providers and patients may be off target. Chronic pain usually brings frustration with it from the beginning. The first time you see someone who's got a chronic pain problem, they were frustrated before they walked through the door. And as I often say, patients have often been on a carousel and they've often been to see multiple healthcare providers for the problem that they have. And it's not going to be uncommon for them to have comorbid conditions, especially like depression, and also be taking many different medications for their chronic pain problem before they ever came through the door. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that when we are prescribed an opioid for something and we don't use it up, we save it. We save it for any day. We save it for other people in our home. We save it because we might need it again on a weekend when we sprain our ankle and we've got to go somewhere the next day. That's what we do. And that sets the stage for polypharmacy. You should not assume that over-the-counter medications are the only thing that patients have taken before that frustrating first visit. So that leads me to the one major difference of chronic pain compared to all other medical conditions, and that is that pharmacologic components of a treatment plan is pretty universal. I'm sure very few of you think that the likelihood of a patient coming to you and seeing you for a chronic pain problem, assuming you're a prescriber, and not walking out with some kind of pharmacologic component of the treatment plan, the likelihood is almost zero that it's not going to happen, right? Not to mention the fact that, as I mentioned, the patient is going to have taken many over-the-counter and maybe prescription things before they ever came through the door. One of the things I think is interesting, uh, and one of the questions that I get asked all the time, is about this issue of long-term opioid therapy. I presented in one of the talks I did yesterday some data about people who are on long-term opioid therapy. And it, it was some study I quoted. And what struck me was there were some people in this survey who had been on opioid therapy for 57 years. That's, that's a pretty wild thing. I'm, I'm 60, so that would have... 57 years is a long time. What that means to me is that chronic pain is different from other medical conditions because the endpoint of pharmacologic therapy is not clear, if it's existent at all. For as long as I have been involved in educating people about pain, we have heard this same question. Where's the scientific evidence? Where's the data? We want everything to be data-driven. We want evidence-based practice, right? Well, we've had plenty of time to get it, and we just don't seem to have it yet. And that's pretty sad, and it's a major difference. What's happening in other medical conditions like blood pressure and cholesterol management and diabetes management is that the outcomes are being honed, and they're being reshaped, and they're being made better, but we don't have a lot of good treatment outcome measures. And, and data to point to in chronic pain. So I would posit to you that chronic pain is a different kind of negotiation. 
It's quality of life versus functional capacity, pain rating, and a key difference is that chronic pain is one of the situations and medical conditions where the patient gets to have a say in what defines a successful treatment outcome. Blood pressure, you put a blood pressure cuff on the patient, you say, you know what? Your systolic blood pressure is still high. I'm going to layer on another dose of therapy or I'm going to change the medication you're on. Your hemoglobin A1C is still elevated. We're going to have to make adjustments in our treatment plan. In a chronic pain patient, you have to say to the patient, how are we doing? And the patient now becomes a partner, a true partner with you, like it or not. And rest assured that if the patient feels that they don't think that the treatment outcome is successful, they're on the carousel, they're out the door, and they're going to add another health care provider to their list, Right? We know that objective markers are almost absent, and it's very easy to take a paternalistic approach to treating patients and say, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to tell me what to do. That's what the patient's saying. Just tell me what to do so I can get rid of my pain. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. And we want the patient to say, we want to say to the patient, just do what I say. The long-standing dynamic of that paternalistic biomedical approach is not a good one to take with patients with chronic pain because it can lead to decreased communication, decreased comprehension, because all the things we need to communicate to patients don't get said because the patient just wants you to tell them what to do. You want to tell them what to do. There's no time to really dig into this other stuff. And that leads to decreased comprehension, confusion, lack of true informed consent. And actually, if you look at it from an ethical perspective, possibly a violation of patient rights to ethical delivery of care. But no matter how you slice it, drugs always seem to be the missing piece in the story when a patient comes to you. And we used to say it. I don't know if it's an outdated phrase now, but the patient used to use that prescription that they'd walk out of your office with as a badge of winning the battle, right? I, I got my prescription, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to hear, are you taking Advil? Yes. When, when you need it? Yeah, when I need it. I want you to take it around the clock. That's it? <laughs> I had to come to you? I had Advil already. Where's my prescription? Drugs always seem to be the missing piece. So when drugs become the missing piece, and we, we realize the fact that pharmacologic approaches are used more often than not, now we have no choice but to use the word that I really didn't want to use in this talk, and that's the word opioid. And the fact of the matter is that nearly oh, in 20 years, way more than 80 to 90% of patients get prescribed an opioid at some point in time for their treatment of the chronic pain. And that's where the storm comes in because such a large percentage of people who abuse heroin start off abusing prescription pain medications regardless of how they get them. And then I, I think in my presentation I included data from CDC when I accessed it that there were 91 people who died of an opioid-related overdose 
each day, and I thought the number was higher, and it turns out it's up to 116. Is it prescription pain medications, or is it, is it fentanyl? You'll have to look at the slides from that talk I gave to see the answer to that. Uh, it doesn't mean we're entirely responsible for it, but it does mean that we know, if we're honest with ourselves, that drugs often enter the arena. And if we look at opioid prescribing trends from 2006 to 2016, almost every year, except for a small plateau in 2016, the number of prescriptions for opioids just continued to go up and up and up. Leading us to this slide. And this is a slide that shows overdose uh, deaths from prescription opioids from 1999 to 2015. And then we look at overdose, overdose deaths from illicit opioids, heroin, and things like fentanyl. And in 2015, it actually overtook it. But the bottom line is, we got both things there. So that's the background. Let's talk about ethics for a minute. Well, one of the things that I talked about at the keynote last night, and that we all talked about actually, uh, is being labeled, right, and misidentified. Uh, there's no question that over the last five years, just the last five years, so many different regulatory agencies have gotten involved with developing guidelines, and states have mandated uh, prescription uh, limits and all kinds of other rules and regulations with the intention of decreasing the number of deaths. That's it. So there are a number of dilemmas that we're facing surrounding opioid use. The growing number of, of, of opioid-related deaths, the growing number of prescribing guidelines. The fact of the matter is that everybody wants to talk about aberrant drug-related behaviors, that there's negative media attention, and as I mentioned earlier, there's stigmatization of both patients and healthcare providers. We are both in danger of being labeled by the people who are looking at us. Comorbid complexities, definitely they exist. Competing educational programs, you might hear one speaker at this meeting say something that's diametrically opposed to something else that somebody else might say in a different session. There's no question about it. But one thing is for sure, that everybody is scared about regulatory scrutiny. The reason there are people like Jennifer Bowen is to defend people who come under the gun. And she mentioned someone who was very near and dear to all of us, a, a long-standing faculty member at Pain Week for pretty much every year. And he became a target of the DEA. And he was one of those people who would do the cases that nobody else wanted to touch. And he ended up retiring because he didn't want to fight the fight. <coughs> to me, that's an ethical problem. But we have no choice but to ask ourselves, who is the most important stakeholder in this story? Those of you who know me know it, that I think it's the patient at the end of the day. It's not the regulators. It's not our colleagues. It's not even ourselves. It's the patient. So 
if, if pain medications are going to be a common part of our approach to treating chronic pain, then we have typical thought process we go through that are very similar to the thought processes we go through for treating other medical conditions. Regimentation, monitoring, we've all heard about documentation. Now all of a sudden you're going to hear a lot more about cannabis coming up and medical marijuana and recreational marijuana and what do I do if somebody's using medical marijuana? A lot of these things are going to be swirling around. And I would recommend to you that you try to focus. There is no question that there's a need for individuality and choice when we look at patients with chronic pain. Because everything patients say with respect to their pain is subjective and everything they need is specific to them. It's like a fingerprint. No matter how you slice it, contact, context always varies. I don't care if you have people the same age, gender, job, family, socioeconomic status. It doesn't really matter. Context is going to be different every single time. And it, the context contains highly valuable information. And it shouldn't be ignored. But you must steer clear of things like gut checks. So, so I'll stop here for a second. I, I talked about the fact that when I went to medical school, we really didn't have any lectures on medical ethics and professionalism and things like that. And one of the things that I was indoctrinated to was the idea of teaching people how to reproducibly do something for all patients that they would encounter. Is that even possible? And the answer is, it, it absolutely is possible. But I would posit to you that many of us use gut checks as our go-to methodology. And what we teach our medical students today is to avoid falling into that pit. To try and look at patients and say, okay, here's the way I'm going to apply this. Now, when we do ethics consults in the hospital, it's always a variety of different things that, that are going on. And maybe it's going to be about taking somebody off a ventilator. Maybe it's going to be about where people get discharged home. But the bottom line is what you're expecting, just like you expect in some legal kind of proceeding, is that somebody is going to look or think of the rules in some book that must exi exist somewhere and say, okay, we're going to apply those rules to you. That's the opposite of gut check. That's the opposite of saying, okay, I'm going to put my finger up to the wind and see the way the wind is blowing, and that's the way I'm going to go. We tend to over-rely on our prior experiences. I've been burned before. I'm not going to get burned again. This is what I know works for people. This is what I'm going to try with you. That doesn't take into account individuality and patient context. And we superimpose that anecdotal experience on our patients all the time. So what's missing is ways to implement clinically reproducible approaches and methodologies that don't lose sight of that need for individuality in assessment and care that has nothing to do with the H&P, has nothing to do with the formulation of a treatment plan. It has to do with digging into that context of the patient. And it's based on the core ethical principles that never, ever deviate regardless of 
who the patient might be, regardless of the age of the patient, regardless of any other individual characteristic you could imagine. To me, that's a really good set of guidelines. Now, there's no deficit of challenges in saying that an ethical approach should be implemented to approaching patients with chronic pain because we have no choice but to take into to account the fact that there is this tempest in a teacup spinning around with respect to opioids, and there are guidelines that are coming out every other day. We have no choice but to think about things like safety, efficacy, aberrant drug-related behaviors, and everything else that might be going on with the patient, and interestingly, everything else that might be going on with you. Can you imagine what would happen if the DEA came to your clinical setting and said, we're going to investigate you on Tuesday and how you would approach a patient on Wednesday who needed an opioid prescription? (laughs) Regulatory scrutiny can be a big influencer on you. There might be something that you hear at this meeting, hopefully not something I said, but something that you hear at this meeting that may make you go home and say, you know what, as of Monday, I'm done. I hope that's not the case, but it could happen. There's pressure. There's confidence or lack of it. And there's whatever else might be going on with you, your patient, with you and your patient, with you and the people who work with you, with the healthcare system that you work with. (laughs) With the pharmacies that fill your prescriptions, somebody was telling me in the state of Nevada that their, their prescriptions that they're writing for patients are getting bounced back. And people are being told what, what they can and cannot have. What does that have to do with context? So in our medical school, when, when the students start, they all put on their white coats and they go through this white coat ceremony and they raise their hand and they take the Hippocratic Oath, and what students are starting to do is they're starting to get pissed off about this. Now, when I did this, I felt like, oh my gosh, I climbed the ladder, I made it into medical school, I got my lab coat, and I'm, I'm taking the Hippocratic Oath. They feel that there's no place for them to take the Hippocratic Oath until they actually get all the knowledge that they need to employ the Hippocratic principles. But the one thing that I think we're all familiar with is do no harm, right? So what drives ethical decision-making? Well, interestingly, there are things that we know and think about every day, but there are things that are actually lurking in our subconscious. Do no harm is probably likely in there in some degree, but if you're employing the new math I talk about, you now have to think about doing no harm to the patient, to other people in the household, to other people in the community, and to society as a whole. That's a lot of things to think about with respect to not harming. We, we have limitations of our, our knowledge base that drive our ethical decisions. We typically do what we're comfortable doing. We choose the antibiotic that's best to treat a patient that we're most comfortable with. We think about, you know what, I usually use this. It doesn't create any problems. I don't get a lot of callbacks. That's the one I'm going to go with. We typically do what we know and rely on our previous clinical experiences. We actually use our 
precognitive judgments and stereotypes and may drive our core ethical principles. And those ethical principles are autonomy, justice, non-maleficence, not malfeasance. It took me about four years to pronounce this word. <laughs> non-maleficence and beneficence. And interestingly, these principles are very old. They're nothing new. But again, I went through all of my years of training in medical school and all of my years of residency and 20 years of clinical practice, and I never used any of those words or even thought about them, not even once. Implementing these may not be as simple as I may be painting the picture about. But maybe when we explore them, they might get a little bit easier. They may seem straightforward and simplistic to you if you're familiar with them. But trying to figure out how to use them can be very, very challenging, especially, oddly enough, when prescription pain medications, which are almost universal to managing chronic pain, are used. Sometimes they overlap and they may even conflict. So here's a question I have for you by a show of hands. How many of you think it is ever okay to keep a diagnosis from a patient who's of sound mind? By a show of hands, how many of you? Okay, I see, I see just maybe one or two hands. This is an issue we discuss in, in our ethics class with our students all the time. So my mother-in-law, my wife is a nurse, I do what I do. My mother-in-law got diagnosed with lung cancer. And a good friend of mine is the oncologist that's treating her. He comes back with the diagnosis. He gives it to my wife because he's a friend. And the first words out of her mouth are, I don't want to tell my mother. And I, and I, I look at my wife and I say, Maria, I'm like, we, we can't do this. And she said, well, it's going to destroy her hope. And unless there's a likelihood of treatment, I don't want her to live a hopeless life. And Christmas is coming. So I said, well, you're putting, you're putting my friend in a very difficult position. In my own home, this happened. And it wasn't until then, and learning from my students, actually, that I learned that there are some cultures where this is the norm. There are some Asian cultures where they do not tell people about their diagnosis if they feel it's going to destroy hope. And you know what? There are some cultural reasons why people might consider it to be the norm. There are even some religious reasons why people, why people might consider it the norm. And what I would propose to you is, you need to know the answers to these questions. Now, if a patient said to me, I don't want to know, talk to my children, then maybe I could say, okay. But in my mind, that is still not employing an autonomy principle of ethics to the patient treatment. Sometimes it's not so easy. So we negotiated with my wife, and after Christmas, we told my mother-in-law. I never saw it coming. So sometimes it's really not as clear as it sounds, but it is worth the effort. So when we think about autonomy and respect, the, the strict definition is acknowledging and respecting that a com competent person has the right to make their own decisions based on 
their own value systems, their own beliefs, and their comprehension of risk and benefit. The impact on practice that that has is that means there's no imposition of interventions. There's always got to be shared decision making. There always has to be offering broad choices to patients to the degree that it permits in the context of man managing chronic pain. But it does not mean conceding to patient desires that may not coincide with sound medical judgment. So if a patient says to you, I want you to do this, Autonomy doesn't mean that you have to listen to them if it doesn't coincide with sound medical judgment. But on the flip side, it means that you have to make sure that you made the effort to give the person the information that they have to at least make a decision with you. In order to achieve that goal of employing autonomy in managing patients with chronic pain, there needs to be education of the patient. There needs to be communication with the patient. There needs to be participation, understanding, and competence. And another thing that we often get confused about in our course is the difference in the definition of competence versus capacity. What's the difference? Well, competence is actually a legal term. And that means that the person has the ability cognitive ability to be able to understand. And it refers to a characteristic or a property. So let me give you an example. Let's say I say to a patient, there was a survey done of 899 medical records and 33% of them had success with this type of treatment. The patient may not be competent to determine what that means to them. They won't be able to do the math because of numeracy challenges that they have. Competence is a legal term. If you're incompetent, you can't do the math. It does not mean you don't have the capacity to make a decision, which is a functional term. You could be incompetent. Lord knows there's no shortage of incompetent people running around. <laughs> but you could still have capacity to make a decision. And if you were employing autonomy in your practice of patients with chronic pain, you may not be lucky enough to get competency, but if the patient has capacity, they get to have a say in the decision 100% of the time. That can sometimes be confusing to people because people use terms like, well, they've been declared incompetent. What they really mean to say is they've been declared uncapable of being able to make a decision. Two different things. So the degree to which one is able to understand is capacity. So the answer to the question is, can you ever achieve true informed consent in someone who lacks capacity? The answer is no. Can you ever achieve true informed consent in somebody who lacks competency? Yes. But if somebody is not competent of understanding the limitations of a certain treatment plan, then you don't employ it. Which brings me to my Kuminen analogy that I've been using for the last 20 years and it hasn't failed me. If you determine somebody's an appropriate candidate for anticoagulant therapy, you need to go through some common steps. You need to think about what the risks of putting the person on the medication are. 
You need to explain to them what the risks and benefits are. You need to tell them what they're going to still be able to do, what they're no longer going to be able to do, and the fact that they're going to need to be strictly monitored with laboratory testing for likely as long as they're on the medication. If they can't understand that, then you can't prescribe it for them. Competency. If you can get it across to them, and they can agree to that, capacity. In my opinion, autonomy wins every time. I walk into the situation and I say, no matter how it's going to shake out, autonomy is the rule that I'm always going to abide by 100% of the time. And if I have to maybe make it take a second seat to some of the other ethical principles, I better have a good reason. But I will say this. When we talk about good documentation, if you make your narratives in your medical record, the place where you can enter your own little narrative, if you have them include the ethical methods by which you arrived at your decisions and formulated your treatment plan, you're going to be bulletproof. And you know what? The patients are going to get the best care they can from you. It's a pretty wild thing that it has nothing to do with assessment, diagnostics, formulation of a treatment plan. It's a whole different dimension, guaranteed. You need to know where you stand. After we're done with, with explaining these ethical principles, you figure out for yourselves whether you think autonomy is job one. Maybe you think do no harm is job one. Doesn't really matter. As long as you know where you stand, you're going to be in a good situation. Don't ignore the others. Just know what you put at the top of the heap and put it at the top of the heap every single time. Justice. Sounds easy, right? No judgment or influence decision. It actually might be the most complicated principle of all. We have a legal duty to provide fair and equitable treatments for all patients. That means that somebody with chronic pain who has no history of a substance abuse disorder gets the same treatment as somebody who does have a history of substance abuse disorder. And then the question goes through your mind, well, that falls outside of my area of expertise. The patient has a history of substance abuse disorder, and I'm a primary care clinician. I heard Zakharov say that they need to be referred to a higher level of care. That's okay. You can write that down in the medical record. You could say, this patient needs to be managed than someone who has a higher level of expertise. That's delivery of justice. Regardless of who they are, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of what our preconceived notions make us feel about them. I trained in a hospital that was the tertiary care center for Sing Sing, Asanin Correctional Facility, maximum security prison, I had to get over, well, I actually never really wanted to know how they got there. <laughs> it's not a topic of discussion. How'd you end up in Sing Sing for life anyway? I, I don't want to know. But I did have to learn that regardless of what I felt about that person, I had to make sure that I gave them the care that they needed and that they deserved. So the idea that opioid analgesics should always be considered and offered to patients when appropriate 
means to all patients. And in cases where there is a history of aberrant drug-related behavior, then you get broader shoulders to help you. But you're ensuring that justice is delivered to that patient. And not only from you, but across your entire practice. All right, the difficult word to pronounce, non-maleficence. So that's the do no harm approach to things. And that, and that means that no matter what you do, you're not going to knowingly subject a patient to harm. And I put that new math in there again because it's not only between us and our patients anymore. If you don't ask the question about household, community, risk, you're not really doing no harm if the son has a history of alcohol abuse or substance abuse in the household and you're introducing opioids into that setting. It's a village that you need to think about, especially in today's pain medicine climate. You need to avoid all of these things, not only at a patient level, like it used to be, but at a societal level. Beneficence, a lot of people put this first. I put autonomy first, but a lot of people put beneficence first. What decisions are made is guaranteed or most likely to benefit the patient. You have to think about this, though, in the context of avoiding the paternalistic approach. Here's what I think is best for you. Remember, the patient gets to have a say. So the patient needs to help determine what is going to benefit them the most. You need to rely on the literature. You need to consider the guidelines. You do need to consider the mandates in the, station, in the states where you uh, practice. You do need to take into account the media, the media attention and the media focus. But you also need to mix in empathy for the patient. You also need to keep an open mind to the true patient concerns and the context that they live and what their perceptions are. I talked about this the other day, but I think it's worth repeating. A lot of people, maybe many of us, if we were prescribed an opioid for a chronic pain problem, we might not want other people to know that. So keeping an open mind to what concerns the patient, what their emotional state is, what their needs for privacy are, what their requirements are, could be key pieces of the puzzle. Looking at that individual context. This really includes truly saying that I'm going to have respect and dignity for everyone involved, irrespective of their capacity, not competency, capacity, because there could be, a, hopefully, somebody else making medical decisions for them, and inclusive of all of the other things that could be going on in their life, from relationships, for reasonable goals and expectations, all the way down the line. Key ingredients to ethical decision-making are communication, way outside the box of the H&P, as I've mentioned, and taking into account all of these different characteristics that the patients may have as their contextual definers. 
inside this, this little cartoon here is an important question that maybe we would never think about asking our patients. But maybe you could start asking them on Monday morning. Is there anything about this that really scares you? What scares you the most? If I were diagnosed with chronic pain problem tomorrow, I know what would scare me the most. It would be the ability to do the things I want to do. It would be how long do I have in terms of time to continue functioning the way I have. It's an interesting question to ask that's not part of the templated H&P. What scares you the most? From an opioid perspective, there's no question that judicious prescribing is a key ingredient to this story when you're mixing in ethics. Thoughtful prescribing and also the fact of the matter is that I, I felt yesterday that there was something at the keynote we didn't talk about that I really wanted to say and, and I'm getting to say it now. It, there's a lot of responsibility that's being placed on our shoulders as healthcare providers. I definitely think at meetings like this, there's not enough that gets discussed about the patient as the center of focus. But there's also not a lot that gets discussed about the fact that the patient, if they're going to have a say in what defines a, a successful treatment outcome, has responsibilities in this story too. And if they're not able or willing to live up to their responsibilities, then that could be an ethical reason to avoid a certain component of a treatment plan. And they need to be able to understand their responsibility in terms of the fact that our state now has dose limitations. And that doesn't mean saying, don't look at me. Uh, my hands are tied. That means that they just need to understand. And, and with respect to urine toxicology, uh, I, I never really get it. Uh, I hear people use this, this term all the time, difficult discussions. Uh, in a true privileged, talking with patients is a privileged situation, right? I mean, when you provide health care to a patient, it's the ultimate privilege. They're, they're letting you inside, right? There is no such thing as a difficult discussion. I have never once felt any angst in asking someone if they have a history of cocaine abuse or other illicit substance abuse, as long as I make sure that they know that I'm not going to judge them based on the answer they give me. I have said things like, I need to know if you're using any other illicit substances, because if you are, what, I'm gonna, what I might prescribe for you might kill you. And I don't want to do that, and I'm sure you don't want that to happen to you. But there is no real thing in my mind as a difficult discussion if we're trusting and open with our patients. So balancing that conflict that we see happening today in the opioid arena and that whole idea of the indications to prescribe versus mitigating potential harms is a, is a key piece of the puzzle. And it is okay to say no. Just don't say no before you think about why you're going to say no. And then if you're going to say no, Say no and say why. And then when you document it in the medical record, document from an ethical perspective why you're saying no. And just say, is it because I'm providing autonomous care to the patient? Is it because I consider non-maleficence to be the key thing that guides me? 
Is it because I feel from a, a legal perspective that that's the right thing to do? Or is it because I think that this is what's going to most benefit the patient? And it's okay if what benefits the patient the most ultimately does no harm. That's good because then you checked off two ethical principles. And if the patient definitely agrees with what you're doing, then you've got autonomy clicked in too. So there are ways to look at these things. And your narratives, I promise you, will be way more meaningful in telling the story if you use this ethical thought process to creating them. So how do you develop that narrative? Well, one way to develop the narrative is to deny the desire to just make pain, as the chief complaint, the, the enough information. Pain is way more than just quality, intensity, location, and duration. You need to identify what the patient's level of motivation is and motivationally in interview them. You need to certainly identify the pathophysiology, but through these other methods of gaining information, you need to clearly clarify what is driving you to make decisions about what the potential benefits are, what the potential risks are, what the context is, and what you might do. You must, must, must make sure that the patient has the capacity to understand what the goals and expectations of treatment are. If the patient is expecting zero pain and you're expecting to get them from a nine to a five, the definition of a successful treatment outcome is not going to be aligned and somebody is guaranteed to have their expectations not met. Measuring progress means you also measure for regress. And when you measure progress, you can check off the list of the goals that are accomplished, but you can also identify the goals that remain. If you're lucky enough to have patients make progress, revisit with them, okay, what's next on our list? Or let's create a list and let's see if we can take baby steps to get where we need to go. You're here, so you're staying up to date. That's a good thing. And from a practical perspective, I'm going to leave you with this. We do need to do the comprehensive assessment to lead to the diagnosis. We do need to make sure, in my mind, that we have an autonomous level of patient involvement, considering all of the things I've talked about. We do need to make sure that from a justice perspective, we're fair, we're equitable, we're compassionate, we're empathetic, and we do need to make sure that we minimize potential harm. We need to maximize benefit, but you need to be willing to do this. And none of this has to do with anything other than just really treating people in as ethical way as possible. This is all interrelated, and, and in my mind, the best part about it is it's something you could do for every single patient, every time. Thank you very much. <laughs>